All right, Galatians 3, verses 1 through 18. Galatians 3, 1 through 18. So I believe one of the, bevel, one of the devil's best tricks is convincing ordinary Christians that they're unqualified to lead someone to faith in Christ. And I think almost all ordinary Christians I know feel this way to some extent or another. There's, there's that one out of a hundred that is just bold as a lion and is ready to storm hell with a water pistol and they just can't wait to tell others about Christ. And we have a few of those in our church. But most of us, including, surprisingly, a lot of folks in the ministry, feel like, well, I'm just not qualified. And for a lot of folks, it comes down to a lack of knowledge. That's the, that's the real hang-up they feel is, well, they're going to ask questions I don't know how to answer, and there are parts of the Bible I completely don't understand, and I'm not the Christian that I should be. And what I always say is, all you need to know in order to lead someone to Christ, in order to be a, an effective witness for Him, is your story of how you got saved. That's it. If you can tell your story and if you can tell it in a way that's, that's true and, and that's compelling and, and brief, that's powerful. Let me, let me just tell you why. So let's say you know you need tires, new tires on your car, which is always fun. Now let's say before you go to the local tire shop, your best friend comes up to you and says, so you, you're going car sh you're tire shopping, right? Yeah? Well, let me tell you, I bought Acme tires. Now, that's not a real brand. I'm making this up. I bought Acme tires three years ago, and I'd never heard of them before, but I did my research, and they were twice as cheap. They were half as expensive as every other brand, and they have lasted better than any other tires I've ever had, and they grip really good in the rain, and I, I, would, I would just, I will never buy any other tires, and I, I recommend them to everybody I know. Now, are you likely to take their advice if they are a good friend of yours? I mean, to me, that's the way a lot of us make decisions. If we know somebody who's been down that road ahead of us and they can come and say, here's what worked for me, we'll say, well, I'll try that. Does it matter that your friend isn't able to tell you what technology was used to make those tires different than all other brands? Does it matter that they're not able to tell you, you know, the, the width of the treads or any, any of that technical stuff? Of course not. You don't need to know that. All you need to know is they've used them and it worked. So you're going to give it a try. And that's the same with our story of how we came to faith in Christ. If you can tell someone, this is who I was before, this is how I met Jesus, and this is the difference He's made in my life ever since, that's powerful. And it's powerful not because of your education or your training or your knowledge or your skill. It's powerful because of the relationship you have with that person in advance. If you've been a person who has shown them love, has lived a life of integrity, has proven yourself to be trustworthy, has absolutely shown that you care about them more than you care about yourself, they're going to listen. And your story's powerful. Now, that's not the only reason your story matters, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. Your story actually has a way of keeping you yoked to the true gospel. What unfortunately happens to a lot of Christians... And this is especially true of Christians like me who grew up in the church and got saved when we were little. I don't know about you, but when I was nine years old and I got baptized, I hadn't killed anybody. I hadn't fathered any illegitimate children. I hadn't robbed any banks. I, you know, I had, there was a whole raft of saucy, you know, spicy sins that I hadn't even thought of committing. And so uh, I don't, it didn't feel miraculous when I was nine. It just felt like, yeah, Jesus loved me enough to die for me. Of course I'd follow him. 
And for people like us, and even for some who got saved later out of a life of wanton sin, there's this troubling tendency to forget how we really came to Christ. And that's how we end up going from the gospel to bad religion, to fundamentalism, to legalism, to the things that drive people away from the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. And just to review, the first two chapters that we've already covered are Paul telling his autobiography in a sense. Not an exhaustive autobiography, but a story of this is how I know my gospel is true. And the reason why is Paul's the one who planted the church in Galatia. Paul is the one who told them about, I say the church, the churches in Galatia, because these are multiple churches. He's the one who told them about Jesus. He's the one who explained the gospel to them. And then after that, sometime after that, these these, uh, believers from Jerusalem have come down, these legalists, and have said, Paul didn't tell you the truth. There's more to it than that. You have to follow the law of Moses. You have to become sons and daughters of Abraham. Your men have to be circumcised. You all have to adhere to the law, just like we have for thousands of years before. And so Paul tells those, you know, those first, writes those first two chapters for the purpose of saying, you can trust me. You can trust what I told you years ago when I brought you to faith. There's nothing more you need. Now he transitions in chapter three. In chapters three and four, he, he switches over to a theological argument. And I hope that doesn't make your eyes glaze over because it, I, I hope I'm able to make it uh, in, you know, interesting and understandable. But it starts in a particularly combustible way. Chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, there's a line I've never used in any sermon. You know, I never stand up and say, oh, foolish First Baptist Church. Yeah. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now verse 1 is one of the many times in this book, in this short book, that we see Paul's frustrations boil over. And he says, he, he, he says inflammatory things, you might say. Uh, he can't believe that these people that he loves, that he personally led to faith and baptized into the faith, that they would so quickly fall for the teachings of these legalists from Jerusalem. After he had shared with them the good news, that all it takes is the death of Jesus for you to be saved. All it takes is believing in the power of his blood. And you need nothing else. And then these guys show up that they'd never met before and tell them something different, and they believe that. Paul is just, he's amazed. He said, has some witch doctor come down and and stolen your brains? Has has someone uh, boggled your minds with some hypnotism? I don't understand how you could be so foolish. You know, it sounds funny to us when he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? But he's deadly serious. He's very, very frustrated with them. And then he asks five questions in rapid succession, and they're all really one question. If you look at them, those questions all say the same thing, which is, is in essence, how were you saved anyway? I mean, how did you really come to Christ? Was it through the works of the law? Was it through being a good person? Was it through anything you did? And that's the key question. How were you saved? This is why I say your story yokes you to the gospel. There are times in every Christian's life when we get high and mighty 
when we become arrogant, when we become legalistic, when we need to just stop and go back to the day we got saved and, and think to ourselves, where was I? Where did Christ find me? Where, what, what, did he, what did He save? Did he, he, didn't, he didn't go out there and say, I'm going to find the best and the brightest who's going to make my kingdom better. No, He found us lost. He found us dying. We need to go back to that and remember that and remember what the gospel really is. Uh, Tim Keller is one of my favorite preachers and authors. In, you know, he, he preaches, or preached, he's retired now, but consistently, the gospel, the gospel, every message had the gospel in it. And after he'd been at his church for a few years, a woman came up to him, and she'd been a Christian her whole life. And she'd heard him preach for a few years and every, every Sunday hear the gospel over and over again. And she finally said, you know, I, I don't like what you're saying. He said, what do you mean? She said, you make it sound like there is nothing in the world that I contributed to, our, to my salvation. He said, well, that's true. She said, I don't like that. She said, if it's all grace, then that's not what I want. I want it to be God does a little and I do a little. Because then it's like I'm a stakeholder. And then I have rights. I can demand things from God because I can say, look, I've done these things, you owe me. But if it's all Him, then He doesn't owe me anything. And if it's all Him, then He can ask me for anything and I can't tell Him no. And Keller said, I was amazed at her honesty because most Christians will not think through how they believe that clearly. They won't realize, wait, if it's grace then I owe God everything. And she realized it. And that's not all. I mean, this is how big this decision is. If you came to Christ by law, by doing good deeds, by being religious, by impressing God, then that means you have the right to judge people who don't measure up to your standards. This is why legalism is so attractive, because it enables us to decide who's good and who's bad, because we have our standards that we've met, and if they don't live up to those same standards, we can... We can point the finger at them and say, you're not good enough. You're on the outside. But on the other hand, if it's by grace, we can't do that because we're just sinners too. Even the people that we know aren't in the family yet, we still look at them and say, I was there once. I understand why you are the way you are. I would be that way too. In the same way, if it's law, if it's what we did, then anybody who doesn't believe we see them as outsiders. We see them as enemies. We see them as people who are getting in the way of us building a community where everybody acts the right way. They're just, they're just enemies that need to be chased out of town. Whereas if we got saved by grace, then every lost person we see is someone who we yearn for their salvation. We, we long for them to hear the good news. We pray that they would receive it. If, if it's law, then whenever we make mistakes or we commit sins, then we can hide it, we can downplay it, we can excuse it, we can blame it on other people because it's, it's about us. We have to guard our reputation. But if it's about grace, then we're upfront with our sins. Everybody who knows us knows what we struggle with because we're open about it and we talk about it and we say, hey, hold me accountable. I'm trying to work on my temper. When you see me get hot and bothered, you talk to me. Or I, I've, I've got a problem with gossiping. So when I start to tell you some juicy story, you interrupt me and tell me to stop because I'm working on this. And that's how we grow. If it's law, and this is the worst part, if it's law, then we're all really lost. Because there's only one who ever was able to follow the law perfectly, and we crucified him. Man, if it's law, we are lost 
to the most extreme amount, to the, to the ultimate degree. But if it's grace, we're saved because He did live that life perfectly, and we get credit for that perfect life, even though we crucified Him, because His death for us brings that life to us. So, how were you saved? Now, Paul then, what we're going to look at next in verse 6, he starts talking about Abraham. And Abraham is, example, is his example, his way of saying, see, everybody who has been saved was saved the same way. Even Abraham was saved by grace. Why does he bring up Abraham? Well, it's very, very likely, since the ones who came from Jerusalem with spinning their tails were devoutly Jewish, like Paul, it's very likely that they told the Galatian Christians, see, you've got to become children of Abraham. And you can't become children of Abraham unless you live like Abraham lived and be circumcised like he was circumcised. So Paul writes, verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So in verse 6, when he says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that's a quote from Genesis 15.6. And we're going to talk about the context later, but I'll just say right now, briefly, that God has just promised Abraham, your progeny, your offspring, are going to be as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham at that point is an old man and he has no children of his own. And yet God says, yeah, you're going to have as many children as the stars in the sky. And Abraham chooses to believe. And God says, just because you believed, I'm going to, I'm going to count you righteous. It was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, God saw him as righteous. And, and Paul's point is, Abraham was saved in God's sight before there was ever a law. Because it was 430 years before God gives Moses the law on top of Mount Sinai. Before there was ever a law, Abraham was saved. That's the point Paul's making. In verse 7, he makes an even bigger point, an even more surprising point, when he says, those who are of faith, those who believe, are the sons of Abraham. So if you want to be a child of Abraham, it doesn't happen by some outward sign like circumcision. It doesn't happen by following rules. It happens by choosing to believe in the same God that Abraham believed in to believe in the same salvation that Abraham received. That's, gonna, that's a point that Paul's going to make in much more detail later in the book, but let's just for a moment, I don't want to run away from it too quickly, think about how much Paul has changed since Christ came into his life. I mean, if you would have come up to him earlier in his life, before he met Jesus, and said, did you know that anybody can be a child of Abraham without becoming Jewish at all? They just have to believe. And Paul probably would have gotten in a fight with him. He probably would have tried to kill him. And now he's writing it in this letter that's going out to dozens of churches and that all the world will see. In verse 8, when he says, and this, I love this line, that, that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Don't you love that? I mean, this is thousands of years before the gospel was ever in print. But what does he mean by that? God was telling Abraham way back then, it's not just your physical children who will be saved because all nations will be blessed through you. And here's the cool part. The word nations in Hebrew is the same as the word Gentiles. So all the Gentiles, all the nations, and you go today to every nation on earth, and there is at least some 
witness of the gospel. Now, there are people groups on earth that don't have any significant Christian witness, but in every, every nation on earth, there is a witness of the gospel. God's word is true. God was telling Abraham before it ever happened, long before it ever happened, you're going to bless the whole world. So then Paul switches. He's been talking about faith in the God of Abraham. Now he's going to start talking about the law. This is what he does in this week's passage and next week's passage. He kind of oscillates back and forth. Let's talk about faith for a while. All right, now let's talk about the law and then back to faith and then back to law. So he goes back to the law in verse 10. Three quotes from the Old Testament in three verses. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 27.26. The point of it is, you have to obey the whole law. You can't pick and choose. You can't decide, well, I'm really good at obeying the dietary parts, but I'm not so good at obeying the parts that have to do with cleanliness. Now you have to obey the whole thing. You can't say, you know, I, I'm fine with, uh, with loving my neighbor. I'm just not fine with not working on the Sabbath. No, you have to do the whole thing. If you break one portion of it, you've broken the whole law. And then in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. And that verse, Habakkuk 2.4, is one of several places in the Old Testament where you can see an admission by God, this law is from me, it's beautiful, it's scripture, but it's not enough. Because Habakkuk the prophet is saying, nobody can really live this out, so you have to trust in God. You have to trust in Him to save you. The righteous will live by faith. He doesn't say the righteous will live by obedience. He says the righteous will live by faith. By the way, this isn't the only place in the Bible where Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4. I'm, I'm a history geek, so I'm going to share this with you. In Romans 1.17, he quotes that same verse. That verse, thousands of years later, a German monk is studying because he's teaching Romans to his students at Wittenberg, and he comes to Romans 1.17, and for the first time in his life, he says, oh my goodness, God's righteousness isn't some standard that I can't get to, God's righteousness is a gift He places upon anyone who believes in Him. And that's, that's Martin Luther. That's the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, right there. So, it doesn't have anything to do with Galatians 3.11. I just can't help but tell that story because it's so wonderful. Verse 12, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. That's a quote from Leviticus 18.5. And the point of it is, the law insists on itself. You can't say that grace will get you part of the way and then you obey your way to the rest. No, the law won't give you room for that. And I think that's the way a lot of Christians think. Yeah, God's great. I needed a little boost and then I climbed up the rest of the way. That's not the way it works. If you're trying to rely on the law, on, on religion of any kind, it can't be done because you have to, you have to obey it all. It, it has to be all law or all grace. You know, it, it, it's amazing to me, and it probably should amaze you too. People did not own copies of the Scriptures back then, for the most part. But they were in the Word of God so often, studying it together in church. They had memorized so much of it. 
Paul can just quote these passages and assume that the people in Galatia know what he's talking about. You and I need, need our little uh, study tools to be able to go, oh, okay, that's what he's quoting, right? But the people back then didn't. That's how in the word they were. That guilt trip was brought to you by, you know. Anyway, verse 13, verse 13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. That's a fourth quote from the Old Testament. That's Deuteronomy 21 23. Way back in the law of Moses, way back in the last words of Moses to the children of Israel, he laid down this law, said, if you're going to hang a man from a tree, don't leave him hanging overnight because a man hanging from a tree is cursed by God and you don't want that visible to your people. He had no idea, I'm convinced, Moses had no idea how God was going to use that truth in the redemption of the world. Jesus took our curse upon himself by allowing himself to be crucified. And when it says he redeemed us through a curse, that word redeem means he bought our freedom from slavery. That's how you set a slave free. You would redeem them from their master. He goes on and says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let me just say this before I move on. I made the point a moment ago about how the people back then knew the Old Testament way better than we do. I, I, I just want to put in a plug. You know, I, I encourage people to read the Bible. A lot of Christians have never really read the Scriptures for themselves. The best they've done is read a little verse here or verse there in a devotional book of, of some kind. And so I'll tell them, don't try to start with Genesis. You'll just get bogged down and, and give up. Start with Matthew. Read the New Testament. Now, I stand by that. But you need to graduate from there to eventually saying, I'm going to tackle the Old Testament. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through the begats, and I'm going to get through Leviticus, and I'm going to get through those prophetic books that are difficult to read because there's so much beauty in the Old Testament, and there's so much in the Old Testament that makes you appreciate the gospel all the more. And this is one of those examples. You're, you're reading through Deuteronomy, and here's old Moses standing up before his people, and suddenly he says this, this thing about if anyone's cursed, if anyone's hang, hung on a tree, they're cursed, and you go, ah, that's talking about Jesus. And there's so much of that in the Old Testament. You get to Psalm 22.1 and you read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You get into Leviticus and they're talking about the Day of Atonement and the, the scapegoat that they lay all the sins of the people on that goat's head and they chase him off into the desert. And you go, ah, that's Jesus. And, and the Passover lamb and, and on and on and on it goes. And so let me just again say, read the Old Testament. Know the Old Testament. It's big enough. You'll never... Learn it all, I promise you. But know it because it's the, the gospel is there. So we're going to close with this next section. Paul goes back to talking about faith and Abraham because he's anticipating that what people in Galatia, especially those who are in agreement with the legalist, he's anticipating that they're going to say, okay, so God saved Abraham by his faith. I see your point. But then he brought in the law, and so the terms changed. You know, faith was good enough for Abraham, but... You know, the law came in, and you now need that to be saved. And so Paul says in verse 15, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards 
does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And, and that's confusing, I know, but the basic point he's making is, as human beings, we know that a contract, once you sign it, is, is, is bound. You can't alter it. You can't go back and, 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 and write in pencil, okay, I've changed my mind about this. No, it's, it's set in stone. You signed it. The other party signed it. There it is. They're written in pen, not pencil. God's covenant is even more so. God made a covenant with Abraham. And the, and the covenant he made with Abraham was, I am going to be true to what I said I would do. I'm going to give you children. I'm going to give you so many children, it'll be like the stars in the sky. And from that massive progeny will come one who will change the world. Your offspring will save humanity. And God's going to fulfill that promise. Now, let's go back to Genesis 15. A lot of people don't know this story well. It's a little, little strange. Remember, this isn't the first time God and Abraham have met. That's in chapter 12. But Abraham, it's some years have passed. There's still no baby. Abraham's starting to doubt. So God comes to him and he says, that promise I shared with you. Listen, look up into the sky. Count the stars if you're able. You're going to have that many children. And then, without Abraham even asking him to do so, God does something to make it more permanent or to make it more real. He says, take, take some animals and cut them in half and lay them side by side. Lay the halves side by side. And I, I can't remember the animals. It was a bull and a goat and a, a lamb and a, and a pigeon or something like that. You can look it up. The point is, it sounds strange to us, but that's the way people made agreements back then. One of the ways. If, if you were signing a treaty with another king uh, to stop a war, or if uh, the two, you, you and another landowner were trying to decide, okay, you're going to have that piece of land, I'm going to have this piece of land, and we're not going to cross over into each other's property. One of the ways you would sign an agreement is you'd cut an animal in half, and you, the two of you would stand between the halves. And you would shake on it, or you would make your agreement. And it was, a, it was an unspoken way of saying, if I don't fulfill my part of this promise, may this happen to me. May I be chopped in half. It was, it was a covenant of blood. So Abraham cuts the animals in half, he puts them down, and he waits. And you think, if you're an ancient person, and you know you're familiar with this concept, you think, okay, so God's going to make Abraham walk through the pieces to say, I'm going to be faithful to you, God. But that's not what happens. No, instead, Abraham sees a smoking fire pot, which, which is God, go through the pieces. And God's saying, I'm going to fulfill the covenant. Whatever you do, you're going to mess up time and time again. I'm going to fulfill the covenant. And because you can't, I will be cut in half. Because you can't, I will die. There's the gospel right there in Genesis 15. Abraham just had to believe. That's all. That's all he had to do. He just had to believe that God was going to fulfill his promise. So back to that original question we started with. How were you saved? Think about that day. If you can think of a day. You know, my dad was not raised in an evangelical church. He was raised in a church where they, they taught the gospel, they taught the Bible, but they didn't. there was never a moment where they said, come forward and pray the prayer and, and accept Christ as your Savior. He can't point to one specific day and say, that was the day I was saved. All he knows is, at some point, he believed. Can you 
pinpoint some period of time. It doesn't have to be a specific day, because I believe my dad. But it has to be a time where you can look back and say, I know why I believe. I know the change that happened in me. I know the difference that Jesus has made in my life ever since then. What is your story? You know, your story is not just the day you got saved either. I want to stress that. Your story is the things that God's been doing in your life ever since. When I give my testimony, it's just not that exciting to hear that I got baptized when I was nine, but the story of how God brought me into the ministry is, I think, pretty exciting. God changes you in specific ways. Maybe your story is not just about how you first believed, but it's about how God rescued your marriage or about how, how God brought you back from addiction, or how God brought you through a, a time of, of grief, or, or, or despair, or any number of things. The question is, why do you believe? How did you come to faith? And what's God done in your life since then? How would your life be different today if you hadn't believed? How has He changed you? How has He shaped you? Know these things, because not only is that the story you can use on the closest people, your closest friends, the, the people you've invested in, and, and to convince them that Christ is real, but it keeps you yoked to the gospel. Because anytime you start to get high and mighty, and we all do, you don't have to be a, a certain class of person. This is what religion does when it gets divorced from the gospel. It breeds arrogance and self-righteousness. But when we come back to, oh yeah, this is who I really was, and this is who I am now, and the only difference between those two is Jesus. So what is your story? Let me leave you with that. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that the gospel is true. And there are men and women all over this room who could tell the story of how you came into their lives. And Lord, perhaps some who aren't confident in their ability to tell that story, but help them, Lord, to remember and to think and to celebrate the blessings of your salvation. And as they do that, I pray that they would gain greater confidence in your saving power and gain greater confidence in their ability to share that with others when they get a chance. Lord, give us opportunities to share that good news with people who need to hear it. Help us to live in such a way that they will ask us, and I pray, Lord, all these things in the name of Jesus and for His sake. Amen.